Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. And we are live. Hey guys, this is Ruben from Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. And today we're going to talk about a, a subject matter that I don't know much about. I have to admit, uh, right now we have an expert, in fact, on this topic, which is uh, a paid newsletter. I just full disclosure here: I've never tried to do this. I've never charged for a, a, a newsletter to be a part of one, and I've also never uh, I've never paid for one. So I've never organized it and never been a customer for this. So I am I'm all ears. I'm a student. Um, Simon, if you could please first start with just a bio about yourself, like how you got here. What you're up to? Sure. Uh, hey, I'm Simon Owens. Um, I got my start in journalism. My first job out of uh, college was as a newspaper journalist at a print uh, a print publication. Uh, was later uh, an editor at U.S. News and World Report. Uh, but I eventually went over to kind of the marketing and PR side, helping a lot of large uh, companies ranging from Google to Nike to Intel to basically create kind of journalistic content and incorporate that into their content marketing. Um, but I'm also just really kind of fascinated with the business of content, how people create content, uh, spread it, monetize it. And so I've been publishing uh, both a regular newsletter on Substack for several years uh, and then also a podcast called the business of uh, business of content, where I have on you know the top practitioners everywhere from the New York Times to uh, YouTube to you know wherever huge media personalities I have them on the podcast and really just kind of grill them about their secrets about how they built their careers uh, in online content. Uh, so, so that's kind of what I've been doing on a regular basis. And then about six months ago, uh, I launched a paid component of my newsletter where uh, people who pay to subscribe for roughly $10 a month, uh, they get extra articles where I do kind of these what I call case study interviews, uh, where I find a media practitioner who has like a lot of insights to share. And I basically grill them for an hour and try to get every single tiny insight that they can offer about how they grew their business uh, and paying subscribers get access to that. So this is, this is a, a tremendous journey because it's really, I think, in my opinion, the evolution of someone you know, in, in traditional media that is now broken out and figured out a very entrepreneurial way to, to provide a ton of value, provide high value content, but then also monetize it and make the whole thing kind of make economic sense. So uh, that's, that's intriguing to me. Uh, what would you say the, the sort of the biggest catalyst point for you um, was when you realized that you needed to start to have, you know, your free content, but then also, you know, paid content? Yeah, so the free content, it always made money, but indirectly and in that it, it was like a client lead generator. So I don't do any kind of cold pitching for my content consulting at all. Um, all the leads I get for new clients are completely warm leads, either from people who I've worked with in the past recommending me, or the vast majority of them are people who subscribe to my newsletter or podcast. They think I'm really smart on this stuff, uh, and they eventually had a need in which they uh, reached out to me. Uh, but the problem was is it wasn't really a scalable business. 
um, because you can only charge so much per hour and you can only work so many hours per week. So every time I would get a lot of client work, it gave me less time to work on my newsletter and podcast, which were actually scalable. Uh, but be but because they weren't generating any direct revenue, I couldn't scale the revenue at the same pace that I was scaling the audience. So the catalyst uh, came this February and it was just kind of like a perfect storm of basically the COVID pandemic happening. Um, I don't know, it just felt like this time where the, you know, there was like a lot of economic disruption. Um, the, the, I saw a lot of publishers put, like really pushing kind of subscription messaging saying, hey, this is the best time to support journalism. Um, and I just made a go for it. I actually had, you know, a pretty huge client who was tossing me regular work. And I actually reached, you know, they reached out to me for a new project. And I said, you know, I really can't take anything on right now because this is what I want to focus on for the foreseeable future. So I've been going at it since then. That's that's uh, intriguing, man. I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared that. One of the things that I that I recently noticed a lot more of was that some of the publications uh, I've noticed this on the LA Times. I've noticed this on I think was it the, was it the Wall Street Journal I think it was the Wall Street Journal where they are just getting much more aggressive when it comes to pay gates, you know. And uh, you can't you you see an article on social media, you click on it, and then you you can't even read it. I mean, you're lucky if you can even see the headline, but bam, right right in your face on your mobile, there's a pay gate that says subscribe now in order to see content like this. And it's 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 a little jarring because you know there's like such two massively different schools of thought when it comes to when it comes to content. On one side, obviously, is that content is democratized and it's free, and the way that money is made is through back end things that maybe we don't need to even think about. I mean, obviously, we do because we watch those ads, um, but we don't have to put a credit card in. And then the other school of thought is that well, no, 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 we need to we need to figure out ways. To, to monetize content, you know, Medium has has this now with a premium subscription. You know, as I mentioned, some of the some of the publications. Um, wh where is the future of this? You know, with these this these two kind of opposing schools of thought. Wh what does this look like in five years? Yeah, I mean, certainly, especially now with COVID uh, and advertising rates cratering, you're seeing um, publishers double down. Uh, on paid content, as you, you kind of pointed to two different models, the LA Times, I think they're they have like a metered paywall that uh, where the paywall kicks in after three visits or reading three articles. Mm -hmm. uh, the Wall Street Journal has a much uh, harder paywall where the vast majority of its content you can't access at all, even if you're landing on it the um, the first time. Um, you're going to just see a lot more um, a lot more publish publishers kind of experimenting with this because they they have to because they just lost the advertising game to you know big much bigger players like Facebook and Google. Um, I think a lot of them are up for a rude awakening. Like the New York Times had so much success with its paywall that I think a lot of other publishers thought they just needed to roll out a paywall and uh, and it would work. Um, and in the cases of like the LA Times. The New York Times has more paying subscribers in California than the LA Times has paying subscribers in California, which is a pretty amazing fact when you think about it, considering uh, California is the LA Times um, home turf and they, they should be beating, winning that war and they're just not. They're still continuing to struggle. Um, and I think a lot of these publishers, you ask you know, five years from now, what is this going to look like? Um, 
there's going to be they're going to have to be experimenting like crazy, figuring out what should go in front of the paywall, kind of like what you were hinting at, like what should be democratized free content and what are users worth paying for? And is that thing that they're worth paying for? Is it content? Is it like just to access the articles or is it like little extra freebies? You know, I had a recent um, a recent guest on my podcast. I don't think the episode has gone live yet. It's going to go live in a few weeks. Um, but he is a sports writer for a newspaper in Ohio. He doesn't put any of his content behind a paywall, but he uses this text messaging service called Subtext. And if the listeners to his podcast want to ask him questions that he then reads out on his podcast and then answers, they have to subscribe for $4 a month. And that gives them a two-way texting service with him where they can send him text messages and he can easily send them back and creates this kind of collaborative atmosphere. And yet the main product, which is his podcast, remains completely free. So you're going to see a lot of experimenting like that where some of them, like the Wall Street Journal, are going to put everything behind the paywall and others are going to create these kind of communities and stuff where they 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 basically unlock the super fans and get them to pay while keeping most of the content for free i think that's tremendous man i i think that that is exactly the direction that we need to go in as, as content creators there and the reason why specifically is that i kind of not to be a, a pessimist because i'm usually not i'm usually an optimist sometimes even an over optimist but the storm that i see coming in my humble opinion is is derived from what Google is about to launch, which is which is forthcoming within just the next couple of months or so, which is their uh, web core vitals, which is going to be a reinvention of the way that they look at content and understand analytics. Because now the vast majority of websites have Google Analytics on them, and they have most of them, at least the, those folks that want to monetize, they have some sort of you know Google AdSense or some, some way to kind of put ads on there. So the amount of data that Google is receiving from our content is second to none. So as a result of this, the thing that I'm personally concerned about is that if that article on the LA Times has a paywall on it and people, the vast majority, let's say 95%, 98% of the people can't actually go spend time on that article on their desktop, on their mobile device, watch the video, that the analytics are gonna be terrible. They're gonna be horrific for that. Google Analytics is gonna say, the vast majority of the people that go to this article are not viewing it. The time on site is three seconds and then people bounce, which means that the, the SEO metrics for those articles are going to get dinged dramatically. Not to mention, once people kind of uh, get, uh, get wind of this, they're not going to be sharing the articles as much. Like I would never share an article on a publication if I know that the other person is going to get stuck with some sort of a paywall or a gate. So the thing that I'm most concerned about is that the SEO metrics for those folks that are trying to overly monetize and not think creatively like what you just presented with, with subtext, I, I am concerned that they're going to suffer a little bit. Yeah, I don't know uh, about the changes that you're that you're describing, um, but one of the you know core metrics within the Google algorithm is how quickly um, someone bounces off the site that they clicked on. So if you click on a search result leading you to LA Times, hit a paywall, and then you immediately click the back button. Uh, to Google, back to the Google search results, that sends a signal to Google's algorithm that you didn't find what you were looking for. So I'm sure yeah. that uh, publishers are already, you know, seeing some effects from that. Um, so a lot of publishers have uh, implemented what's called, I think it's called like first click free, um, which if you're coming in through um, Google search results, 
even though there's normally a paywall, you can still access the content. Like it basically turns the paywall off for Google searches. So, um, you know, obviously that might uh, be a factor. Although a lot of a lot of publishers turned off uh, first click free because people figured out that was a way to get get around their paywall. They would just Google the headlines and then click on that, and then they would get right. to you know read the article. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely Hatch a different. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say hashtag incognito window. <laughs> yeah, although, yeah, most publishers are actually making blocking incognito mode so you can't get around um, that way. One other thing kind of related to what you're talking about, uh, I read an interesting article a few weeks back noting that a lot of the highest quality publishers that are like publishing the best information, especially politically and health related um, right now, are uh, you know have paywalls, whereas a lot of the low quality news sites, the, the ones that are called that are publishing so called fake or false news, especially like you know COVID virus misinformation and stuff, they're monetized through pro programmatic ads and they're kind of built to go viral on places like Facebook and Twitter. So we have this dynamic where fake news is actually able to spread a lot more easily kind of to your point than the really high quality news. And I think that's going to create a very corrosive environment um, for information consumption. Yeah. Well said. So, so how do we do this as, as smaller, as smaller creators, how do we get ourselves into a flow where we can get a, an entire calendar of high value content? How do we build up our social channels so that we can amass followers, prospects, how do we figure out economic ways to monetize the process, you know, i.e. paid newsletter, i.e. texting services? And how do we do this in a way where we can continue to grow and, and, and scale this? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly hard. It's a cutthroat, um, cutthroat atmosphere out there. Everybody is only one click away, so your competition is virtually uh, limitless. I mean, obviously, the biggest the biggest kind of top line piece of advice is consistency. Um, you know, that's one of the like other than just creating high quality content, putting it out on a consistent basis so people get to you know learn your brand to um, you know follow you, all that kind of stuff. That's how you're going to kind of amass the kind of audience that you can then later convert. And it might be subscriptions, it might be ads, but it might be something like what you're doing, where you have a paid video product. So this is kind of like a thought leader. I'm guessing that this podcast that we're on right now is a form of thought leadership where it's kind of bringing people in the top of the funnel and then bringing them down to the sales funnel. Um, so thinking along, along uh, those lines, um, the other big trend line that we're going to see is just more, um, more emphasis on the email inbox as a lot of these big tech platforms rein in their content, uh, you know, put their algorithms so that you have to pay just to access your own followers. The emphasis is going to be just getting the email address. Cause once you have that person's email address, have access to their inbox, uh, you can do all sorts of interesting marketing things, uh, not just serving them with content, but also drip campaigns and other kinds of marketing things to, you know, slowly work on uh, converting them into paid subscribers. And it's a it's it's a long, hard slog. I mean, I I've been doing this for six months. The paid version. I'm I'm not making a full time income yet. I'm I'm on a good trajectory. Um, if you look at the graph, it's you know up and to the right, uh, and it's and I'm you know, growing it every single week, but you need to have that kind of runway to, 
uh, reach it. Like uh, I think the good rule of thumb now is, you know, it takes two, at least two years worth of high quality content uh, before that content is generating enough direct revenue uh, to where, you know, you're making a full-time salary or whatever. Wow. That's, that's an interesting metric. Tell, <laughs> speak to me about that. Where did that come from? Uh, I mean, it's basically based on studies of, you know, full-time creators, whether especially subscription creators using platforms like Substack, which is a platform that allows for paid newsletters or Patreon, um, uh, you know, a platform that does a little bit of paid newsletters, but is mostly utilized by, um, you know, uh, podcasters and YouTubers and musicians and stuff like that. You know, me, I've interviewed a lot of them and, and a lot of them, they have to have their Patreon or Substack account on up for a very long time where they're just continually having that call to action, directing, uh, the listenership back, um, to, before they reach a kind of critical mass of those. I, I don't know if you know the, 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 the thousand true fans, the, the that kind of metric of hitting a thousand people who are willing to pay for your work. Yeah, I mean, we I constantly am surfing surfing this wave because you know on one hand we we have a software platform that's 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 our revenue source that's where we put the vast majority of our time into. Uh, but at the same time, people need education. They need to learn. They need to learn on how to communicate and how to use video and how to you know used up on LinkedIn and so many different kind of features that we have. So on the other hand, we need to be coaches and trainers. So, you know, I noticed that we constantly suffer from this thing where like, should we pay for this? Should we, I'm sorry, should we charge for this? Should we not charge for this? You know, on one hand, we, you know, we have, we have a vehicle, we have a financial vehicle, but on the, on the flip side, you know, this is obviously a big time commitment for us. Um, what, what would you suggest to folks to kind of figure out how much of their content to give away for free and and how much to charge for? How do we determine that balance? Yeah, I mean, so if you're in terms of like how much content um, you want to give it for free, I don't have an exact metric, but you should be trying to give as much content away for free because that's kind of the top of your funnel. Uh, and you also want to make kind of like your highest quality content. You would think you would want to put the highest quality content behind the paywall, but in reality, you actually want to put it in the in front of the paywall because that's the content that's most likely uh, to, to go viral and then to cr create a bunch of, um, you know, signups, which you can then later convert uh, into paying subscribers or, or customers in, in the case of your software product. Um, I, but I think one thing to think about is uh, how do you make your paid product different from your free product? So like a lot, so this is less relevant to you because obviously your your free product is your podcasts and, and video series, uh, whereas your paid product is an actual software product. So that's so so it's more obvious there. But people who have, for instance, like paid newsletters, their natural inclination is to make the paid newsletter look just like the free newsletter. Um, and I don't think a lot of people actually want to pay for for one more extra of what they're already receiving for free. So you got to think about what can you what what kind of iterative value can you add on the paid product versus the free product. In my case, the paid product are these case study interviews, these kind of inter these kind of evergreen, uh, long form interviews where people could actually go and peruse through my archives and 
uh, you know, find like relevant stuff going back months or even years. Whereas my regular free newsletter is a little bit, a little bit more tied to the news cycle and what's going on that week or that month. And so it has less long-term evergreen value. So that's the kind of thinking you have to, you have to consider when you're weighing, what do I put in front of the paywall versus what do I put behind the paywall? Mm, that's, I think that's, I think that's key when it comes to finding that, that, that balance, you know, and I think that, uh, I think that trajectory that you mentioned of seeing growth, you know, I think that that's, I think the most important and honest data metric to know, you know, are we, are we acquiring, you know, followers? Are we building our brand up? And then is that resulting in conversions? Those two metrics have to be connected. You know, one of them can't be off from the other one. They have to be uh, total total partner. So I think that's really, really interesting. Uh, if you could please give us sort of a, a tactical a tactical path on on how we can create our email newsletter. Now, what's the tech that you might suggest for us? Um, what is a, sort of a schedule that you might do? Maybe something obviously every it's going to be different for every each and every person, but maybe what your process is, what tech and what your calendar looks like. Well, let's talk about the calendar first, because I think this is a big mistake a lot of people do is they say, okay, we're going to send out a newsletter once a month. But think about the person who, who subscribes to your newsletter. Let's say your, your, your newsletter goes out the first of every month and someone signs up for it on the third of that month. So two days after you send out the newsletter, someone signs up to receive the newsletter. Then they have to wait 27 days before they see it again. And in the vast majority of cases, that person will forget that they even signed up for your newsletter or even who you are. And so when you receive it again, they have a very high likelihood either to send it to their spam folder or to, or to unsubscribe because they don't even realize that they signed up for the newsletter. Um, because that that top of the funnel connection between when they were interested in your content and when you sent out the content was just too long. Um, so you should be doing it on a cadence of at least every other week, if not at least once a week. So that's what you should be thinking about in terms of calendar. In terms of tech, depends on what your uh, your goals are. For me, I am mostly an editorial writer. The, th the main thing that I offer is content. Uh, so I use Substack. Substack has its benefits because it's made for people like me who just want to do kind of one thing and that's uh, charge people to get access to uh, more newsletters. But it doesn't have a lot of those kind of more souped up marketing capabilities that a more sophisticated email platform will have. It doesn't allow drip campaigns. It doesn't allow me to create segmented lists. It doesn't allow me to do A-B testing. You know, for your platform, I'm assuming you have a couple different employees. I'm, I'm assuming you have a decent sized marketing budget. Yeah, you might even have a full-time marketing person. In that case, you want to you want to maybe uh, to to invest in a much more sophisticated marketing platform. Obviously, the most well-known is Mailchimp, where you can do kind of more sophisticated type measuring to see where users are converting and tie it into your Google Analytics and really kind of do a data-driven approach uh, to how that you're implementing email into your larger marketing apparatus. Yeah, actually, the since you mentioned it, the thing that we have been on a journey on for the last so many years now is, is, is really offering a video first content creation and sharing platform. And that's what we've been building. So we started out using third party email tools. Uh, and then we just decided to 
to build it all within Dub. So now what I think makes Dub a little bit different is that it's once you create a video, you can share that video on a one-to-one -one basis, Gmail, LinkedIn, but then you can also broadcast that to a large list of thousands or tens of thousands of folks. And, and I think what makes it a little bit different is that it is a video first strategy. You know, of course, video is not for everyone. You, you mentioned that you are more focused on editorial pieces. So, you know, dub might not be appropriate for you because if you're not putting out some sort of a video as your, as your content, it's, it's, it's not going to work. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we've learned is that content and quality is what drives more interest. And I think that it's the hardest thing to do because what I think most people do inherently is that their content is a little bit salesy, you know, and a lot of people suffer from this. We hear it all the time that, Hey, listen, my email open rates are not very good. My click rates are kind of terrible. You know, what's going on. And then we'll take a look at, at some of the content. We'll notice, well, are you providing value or are you just trying to sell something? Because if you're just trying to sell something, you're only really catering to two to 5% of your audience. Whereas if you're being educational, then it's 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 much it's much broader. Question for you: How do we find our balance with 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 not being salesy in our content? And what type of things can we do to really get ourselves into that mindset of being you know customer centric, not sales centric? Yeah, I mean, there should be hardly any sales at all, and I, I think that you know 80, 80 plus percent of your content should never, hardly ever, you know, mention. The, the you know the company you work for unless you're trying to like share some teachings from what you're doing in your day-to-day -day life then it might be feel more natural like if you're writing kind of like a first person essay or podcast or video about something that you learned you know through the process of running your company and except in those cases you really shouldn't have much content at all around your company um like you do need to have landing pages so that like maybe at the end of the content you can then you know explain like have the tie-in um for instance in my podcast um my, my average podcast episode is anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes long i spend about 60 seconds of every single podcast uh, talking about my paid newsletter. So you could, I don't, I mean, whatever that math is, the ratio of me just trying to create good content and insights and deliver those versus me just talking about the product I, I'm selling, there's just like, there's no comparison. And I think, I think just about every brand should be doing this. And this is always the struggle of the content marketer is to kind of get them to relinquish the sales process and just trust that if you provide value that a certain percentage of your more loyal followers will go to explore your product and learn more about it and can convert further down the line. Well, the math I did real quick was five to 10%. So five, percent at the minimum is what you might spend on focusing on saying sales focus. So 90 to 95% is, is value focused, entertainment focused. That that's a great metric. I think that we all need to, to live by that. We all need to remind ourselves of that. You know, mm -hmm. the next time, the next time folks are putting together a podcast or an email newsletter or a video, you know, they need to think what Simon said that, you know, <laughs> five to 10% um, should, should be kind of sales focused in an eloquent way, obviously yeah. not pushy. Um, and the rest is, is, is obviously, you know, on value. Um, and, and that's not to say that, that's not to say that you can't have direct sales. Like I'm sure, uh, you, you, um, 
you buy, for instance, Google AdWords for people who are Googling, you know, video creation software or something like that. In that case, that's a that's someone specifically looking for your kind of product. And in that case, obviously, you want to make the more direct sale. Uh, but you know, this is strictly speaking in terms of content marketing. That makes sense. So it's you know, it's folks that are higher in the in the ecosystem that aren't necessarily at some decision stage and they're they're just learning right? that's cool that makes total sense to me um speaking of your content where can we learn more about you what's the name of your podcast you know website mm -hmm. so the uh the the podcast is the business of content uh so you can find that wherever you get your podcast uh, the newsletter, I, a lot of times I just tell people to Google Simon Owens newsletter. I like that because it's it, when they Google that and people click on the newsletter, it's it's telling Google that I that uh, it has a lot of uh, value to readers. But you can also just go to simonowens.substack.com. Nice. Very cool. So that makes total sense. Substack is the platform that you're using. And then Substack is taking care of, does that take care of the free newsletter and then also the paid one, or is it just the paid? Yep, it's an all-one platform. That's what's so great about it. Amazing. Well, this was this was uh, this was enlightening, man. I I really appreciate your time, Simon. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. See you, man. Take care. Thanks.